Hi there, welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. Today I am joined by John Feinstein. If you follow golf closely, you'll know that name pretty well. John has worked in golf and in sports media for decades now. You'll see him commentating on the Golf Channel or on CBS Sports Radio. He writes columns for the Washington Post, and when he has a little more time on his hands, he writes books, like the one that was just recently published about the 2016 Ryder Cup. It is titled The First Major. John, first things first, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Sean. Good to talk to you. Now, I need to start with one thing that has me very curious. You're on Twitter. Your handle is at jfeinsteinbooks. Your account is one of the lucky ones that was granted a 280-character limit instead of the typical 140 characters. First of all, are you aware of that? And as a writer, that must be so liberating. I am aware of it. It just sort of happened one day. I don't even know exactly when. Uh, uh, And people have asked me why. It might be that Anthony Noto, who is the CEO of Twitter, uh, is a former Army football player who I know very well dating to uh, when I did my my Army-Navy book, A Civil War. And maybe Anthony just put me on that list. But honestly, I don't know how it happened. But it it is nice to have the extra words, especially when people are attacking me about something. (laughs) Well, anyone who's been following you on Twitter, at least recently, they would have seen various reviews for your book that you shared uh, now, the book is titled The First Major, and it details the inside story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. We're going to get into the book plenty today, uh, but I want to start with the title, The First Major. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit curious to me. Uh, why why did it end up getting titled that way? Well, uh, because I believe that the Ryder Cup is the best event in golf. I know winning a major, uh, one of the four, uh, is more prestigious for an individual and probably makes them more money than being part of a winning Ryder Cup team. But there's no event in golf that is as electric, as tense, as passionate uh, as the Ryder Cup. It's the only meaningful team event. I, I just I don't count the President's Cup. To me, that's like comparing a member guest to the Masters. Um, and I decided that uh, to call it the first major because – I think it, it, it is the best event in golf, and it's the one the players look forward to most. That wasn't always the case, but it certainly is now. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, now, you, you circled in on a very specific Ryder Cup, and it is a memorable one. It will go down and will be always remembered as a, almost an inflection point in the Ryder Cup history. What made you want to do this book, though? What made you want to spend, I can't even imagine how much time, focusing on one event, only three days' worth of golf? Well, it was three days of golf, but it was more than a year of research for me before uh, the event began, because obviously I needed to make sure that most of my reporting was done uh, before getting to Hazeltine, because as you know, we have very little access to the players during the Ryder Cup. It's not like other golf events where the locker is open or the range is, is open or the putting green is open. Um, I was able to stay in touch with some of the guys through texts during the week, but that doesn't get very much done. Uh, so, but, but to answer your question, I first knew I wanted to do a Ryder Cup book in 1993 uh, when I went to the Ryder Cup at the Belfry as part of my research for Good Walk Spoiled and realized during that Ryder Cup that there was no event like it in golf. And I remember Davis Love, who ended up playing and winning the pivotal match in that Ryder Cup against Constantino Roca, saying to me afterwards that standing in the middle of the 18th fairway with the match tied, knowing what was at stake, he almost got physically ill. 
you just don't hear that from guys yeah. playing other other tournaments. And Davis also told me about Tom Watson saying that he and the three other rookies on that team, uh, Chip Beck and John Cook and Lee Jansen, the night before the the matches began, this is the only event in golf where your legs will shake on the first tee. And Davis thought that was ridiculous. You know, he said, I played in all the majors. Come on. And he walked on the first tee the next day with Tom Kite as his partner playing against Olathebel and Ballesteros and realized his legs were shaking. Um, he even suggested it was alternate shot uh, to Kite that maybe Tom should take the odd holes because he didn't think he was ready to tee it up on number one. So my desire to write this book goes back that far. It took me a long time to get my act together and also to figure that this was the right Ryder Cup to do uh, given what had happened at Medina in 2012 and then what happened at Glen Eagles in 2014, I knew either way it was going to be incredibly dramatic because the U.S. had to win. And if the U.S. won, it was going to be a big deal because of the task force and the Watson-Mickelson meltdown. Uh, and if the U.S. somehow lost, uh, it was going to be a disaster. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that was the general perception for people coming into the event. I, I just know that... For you, you you had to affiliate yourself with everybody, though. You couldn't just be close to the American side. You couldn't just be right. close to the, the European side. You kind of had to have yourself tied into just about, I mean, it's it's 24 players and I suppose like eight uh, captains and assistant captains. So was, right. that, was that difficult trying to, to get all the various stories, try to, to nail down all these different interviews? And get a, get a well, that's the beauty and the challenge of a book that you don't know beforehand a book like this who are going to end up being the key characters so you just sort of have to go on the notion that anybody could end up being a key character which is why i actually interviewed a, a number of guys who ended up not playing uh justin thomas and luke donald and uh graham mcdowell uh guys like that who might have been on the teams uh but weren't but i had to be prepared in case they were there were a number of others too and also, that's why I started doing the interviews so far in advance, because I needed to build up trust with the key guys. I'd known Davis Love for years. I'd known Darren Clark well. Uh, I knew Mickelson well. But I didn't know Jordan Spieth very much. I needed to get time with him, and fortunately, he was very generous with his time. I knew Rory, and he was extremely generous with his time and, and with his comments about the book now that it's come out. So I'm grateful for that. But you're right. I uh, it, it was something where... you. It's one of those deals where I've, I've done enough to know you need to have 200,000 words in your notebook if you're going to be able to write the right 100,000 words. Okay. And it goes back to my early training uh, when I was a Metro reporter at the Washington Post and Bob Woodward was my editor. And he always said, you can never make one too few calls, but you, one too many calls, but you can make one too few calls. So always make the extra phone call. And in the case of a book, always do the extra interview or take the extra time. And I think ultimately that paid off for me. Yeah, now that's a good mantra for journalists, writers, everybody out there. Um, one thing I'm, I'm curious about that is how do you get these guys? I mean, PGA Tour players, I think, are infamously private with a lot of different things. And I get that mm -hmm. this is an event that they love and they love to be a part of. And they also love talking about. But is it difficult in any way? Um, to get them well, to open it's certainly up. a challenge, uh, and again, especially with guys you don't know that well. But one of the things that helps with a book is if you can get guys to give you time, because that's how you develop trust. When I first time I sat down with uh, with uh, Jordan Spieth, uh, we we knew each other a little. Hello in the locker room, 
per, and a little more than that, but not that much more. But he was willing to sit there and answer all my questions. He wasn't in a rush. He played a practice round. He was relaxed. And at the end, I said to him, you know, I'm going to need to circle back to you as this goes on. And he said, yeah, fine. Just take my cell number. That's the easiest way to get in touch with me. You can't ask for more than that. And, and virtually all the guys w- were like that. And I think you made a very important point just now that part of it is it's a subject they like to talk about. The Europeans more than the Americans because they've had so much more success. But the Americans were, were very willing and eager to talk about it because they, they felt like they were going to win. Uh, and and they, they wanted uh, to, to discuss the reasons why they thought they were going to win. Mickelson, who you might have thought would be a little gun shy after the whole Watson thing, was very eager to talk about his Ryder Cup history and to explain that his, his anger wasn't just directed at Watson, that it dated to 1995 when Lanny Watkins was the captain and Phil sat out Friday morning and Watkins didn't tell him. And that sort of set the whole thing in motion where Phil didn't feel like the players had enough input with the captains, not just Tom, but Watkins and Hal Sutton, you know, the whole thing with Tiger, which frankly I don't buy. But that was his reasoning, that if, if Sutton had given he and Tiger more warning, uh, they would have been able to play better. Now, the, this whole thing about playing Tiger's golf ball, that doesn't explain why they lost the, the four-ball match, because they're exactly. playing their own golf balls. Exactly. But Phil had this whole thing built up, and he was he was willing to share it. So that was very helpful. Now, there's only 28 points in a Ryder Cup, 28 matches. 12 of them come on Sunday. Uh, when you think about it, that's actually not that much golf because there's not even 18 holes being played in all of these matches. Correct. Uh, I mean, you were able to carve out over 300 pages of a book of details on this. I get that it was it was a pretty incredible week. I mean, you had the guy that came on uh, to the practice screen, the American fan. Like, <laughs> no, no, not the practice screen. It was on the golf course. Yeah, so exactly. So there yeah. um I mean, just things like that. Danny Willett's brother writing a, a, his own little bit and kind of throwing Danny Willett's week in flux. Like, when you, were you pretty much taking everything that, that you could find and trying to work it in here? Like, I mean, there's so much detail. Yeah, I mean, and, and detail has always been what I've done. I remember years ago I had an editor uh, for one book uh, who – kept writing in the margins, too much detail, too much detail. And I finally called him on the phone. I said, look, you can't edit me because detail is what I do. And if you think there's too much detail in this book, then you shouldn't be editing it because that's what people read me for. They're not looking for headlines. They're looking for the stories behind the headlines when they read my books. And, and a lot of the book, as you know, uh, is about what happened before everybody got to Hazeltine, uh, about there's a little bit of history of the Ryder Cup itself. Then I go back to, specifically to 2012 and the, either the meltdown or the miracle at Medina, depending on your point of view, and how that led to Watson being the captain in 2014 because Ted Bishop decided the U.S. needed a captain who was going to be more authoritarian and not one of the guys. And we all know how that worked out. And again, you can blame whoever you want, but the fact is that Mickelson told me that the day they made the announcement, they, he knew it was a mistake. Well, if that's your attitude, that doesn't really help no. going into play on the road on the, in the Ryder Cup that we have the wrong captain. He had already decided that before Watson did anything. I mean, he told me that. So th- then came Glenn Eagles, then came the task force and all the stories out of the task force. And then I, I sort of built up the story on how the captain's picks were selected. Uh, Davis was 
willing to share a lot of detail with me. So was Darren Clark on their captain's picks. And then, as you said, the matches themselves. And the, the key there for me was to get the guys to tell me stories about what took place in the team rooms that week. Yeah. Because everybody knew who'd won the matches. I mean, it's a year out. Everybody knows the U.S. won. But what I think the book brings um, into play are the stories about what took place behind the scenes that nobody did know about. And that's, again, that's a credit to the guys for being willing to share with me. Okay, so let's talk about if there's any uh, any stories like that, maybe one of them that's in the book that uh, kind of gives a good taste of what readers would get from the book. Is there one that well, really surprised you even? Oh, yeah. I, it, people always ask me when I write a book, what surprised you the most? And my answer in this one is Tiger Woods. Because, as you know, Tiger was never an enthusiastic Ryder Cup player. He played because he knew he had to. Uh, his father had raised him that the majors were what mattered and that you're an individual. You don't have any teammates, even if you're playing in a Ryder Cup or a President's Cup. Um, you, you, you stay at arm's length from, from those guys in, in the locker room. You go out, play, do the best you can, and get it over with. And, and Tiger was only part of one winning Ryder Cup team as a player in 1999 at Brookline. But when he was named vice captain, Davis said to him, if you're going to do this, you've got to be all in. And Tiger told him he would be. I personally was skeptical. Okay. I think a lot of other people were skeptical. But Tiger ended up being so deep into it that he was calling players before the matches began you know, to talk about who do you want to play with in foursomes, four balls, where, where would you like to go in the singles lineup. I think this would be better to the point where one day he, Brant Snedeker, told me he couldn't get Tiger off the phone. And he finally said to him, Tiger, I got to go. You need a hobby. I mean, that's how into it Tiger was. And Snedeker and Kucher and Patrick Reed and Jordan Spieth, who were unofficially yeah. Tiger's guys. There were no formal pods like with Paul Azinger, but he, he, three of the assistant captains, vice captains, were assigned to four guys each informally. And uh, they told me, all of them told me a story on Sunday night in the team room while the celebration was going on. Tiger called them all over and he said to them, I want you guys to look around this room and I want you to savor what's going on here right now. And I want you to enjoy tonight and stay up all night if you want to. And he told them a story about 99, his one win, when he was exhausted, he wasn't that into being part of the team and he went to bed early, like 10, 1030. And Payne Stewart came and banged on his door around midnight, having had a few drinks, no doubt, and said to him, get up and come back downstairs. You're going to be part of this. You're not just going to bed. And Tiger was like, I'm exhausted. I don't want to do this. No, you're coming downstairs. And Payne said to him, according to Tiger, um, you're never going to see a moment like this again. You might be on, part of, uh, on another winning Ryder Cup team, mm -hmm. but this night, this day, the way we rallied, these guys in this room at this moment, you're never going to be part of that again. This is unique. And Tiger got up and went back downstairs and said, of course, he was glad that he did because he was part of it. But, you know, probably more poignantly, Payne died a month later. That's incredible. You know, Tiger, his relationship with the Ryder Cup, I'm sure you you you, know, you covered a lot of it. You, probably, you cover him, obviously, much more than any of the other vice captains. But, you know, there's, there's stories with all of them there, particularly Bubba Watson as well. But I feel like... Tiger, he plays an interesting role in that Ryder Cup, as you write about. He did specific things for the team. Uh, you know, 
and, and some of it comes down to just making a joke at the right time for Patrick Reed right. on the back of the range. But it almost feels like that Ryder Cup team did more for Tiger than he did for the team. Do you agree with that in any way? I, I do. I, I really think so. I, I you know, I, I, I think Tiger has lived kind of a lonely existence the last few years. He only gets to see his kids uh, at prescribed times. Um, you know, he lives alone in a gigantic house. He's he hasn't been on tour hardly at all because of his injuries. Uh, and I think being part of this team and being around these guys and, and remember Zach, a lot of them are younger guys who grew up worshiping tiger. Yeah. I mean, when, when tiger won the masters in 1997, uh, Jordan Spieth wasn't yet four years old. And Zach Thomas, uh, Justin Thomas, who wasn't on the team, was uh, was four years old. Patrick Reed was six years old. So these guys grew up with Tiger as a hero because he was such a great player. And so now he's a vice captain. He's working with them. He's advising them. They were into it. They were really into the whole notion of mm-hmm. Tiger Woods as one of their vice captains. And, uh, again, you mentioned the Reed thing. He said he was warming up on Sunday, said he'd never been more nervous in his life. He's playing McElroy. It's the first match. Uh, he was, they'd lost at Glen Eagles. The, everybody in the American team room was desperate to not blow the three point lead the way they'd blown the four point lead at Medina. He knew how critical that match was going to be. And he said he was really struggling and tiger was standing there watching him and called him over. And he thought he was going to give him a talk You know, calm down. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Just play like you played Friday and Saturday. And instead, Tiger told him a dirty joke. Yeah. And he said that loosened him up completely. And you know how he went out and played that exactly. day. Exactly. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, well, I mean, Tiger was the uh, another vice captain this year at the President's Cup. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll be seeing him maybe in a similar role. Uh, and actually not that long from now uh, over in France for the 2018. Right, for Jim Furyk, right. Um, before I let you go, a couple questions I'm, I'm really just curious about. Now, you famously wrote the, the Season on the Brink book about uh, an Indiana Hoosiers team under Bob Knight, and you followed that, uh, as far as golf fans will remember, about a decade later with The Good Walk Spoiled. And mm-hmm. it's a classic golf book, and everyone who hasn't read it at least needs to look into it because I think there's a lot you can get out of it. Um, first, I'm curious, what is, the, what is it about the, the season-long, year-in-the-life like dive deep genre that works so well for mm-hmm. you as a writer? Well, I think it's, it's, it's mostly about the access Zach. I, I, uh, years ago when I was in college, I accidentally stumbled into the army football team room after a game. I was a junior in college. I was at Duke. Duke played at army and uh, there was no guard on the door. And I thought I was going into the Duke locker room and it was the army team room. And I stood in the back of the room, uh, transfixed, listening to the players talk about how upset they were about losing the game and what football meant to them. And I realized at that moment that firsthand reporting, being actually there, is totally different than having guys, you know, stand in front of a locker or come out of the locker room and say, well, you know, we won because of this or we lost because of that. And always kept in the back of my mind uh, that a book like that, uh, where you were inside for an entire season just because chronologically that would work, um, could be a great book. And the, the first coach I approached for the idea was Dean Smith, and he turned me down. I, I had a great relationship with him, but he said, I'm not ready to be as honest as you want me to be. And a few years later, I approached Knight with the same idea, and he was open to it and gave me that incredible access that I had in 85, 86. And the success of that book told me that my instinct had been right that the more up-close access you can get, 
when you're when you're whether you're writing a newspaper story or a magazine piece or uh, a book, the better you're going to be because when when it's firsthand and and when it's as raw as possible, it's better. And I've always tried to to kind of follow that mantra. Yeah, there's a lot of that firsthand in your book about uh, the Ryder Cup as well as Good Walks uh, Good Walk Spoiled. Um, last question for you that. That book, the, A Good Walk Spoiled, you did it in the 90s. You did it right. before Tiger Woods hit the PGA Tour. He was still at Stanford at the time that it was published. Um, I'm curious, with the saturation of golf media as uh, was kind of the result of Tiger Woods kind of t- tearing the cover off of the golf world, uh, mm-hmm. would it be possible to do a book like that today? And be harder you know uh shane ryan who i think is a very good reporter tried to do a similar book a couple of years ago yeah. and had to go through agents to get to people and sometimes didn't get to people and uh it's definitely harder now um i you know i was lucky doing the first major that i'd been around long enough that the guys who didn't know me well at least knew who i was so there was kind of an open door there. It wasn't like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, you, you, we know you write books. We know you, you, you've you been around golf. Um, but definitely uh, it, it would be much harder for anybody uh, to do that kind of book uh, today. It's still doable. I think it's still doable. I just think it requires more work. Well, you put a ton of work into the Ryder Cup book. You put a ton of work into A Good Walk Spoiled. Uh, the Ryder Cup book is John Feinstein's new book. It is out Anywhere, I'm sure, that you can find books online uh, or in stores. It's titled The First Major, and it is subtitled The Inside Story of the 2016 Ryder Cup. Honestly, the coolest golf event I've ever been to. Uh, anyone in my shoes or John's shoes or honestly even as a fan, even watching on TV, is going to remember that Ryder Cup for a long time. Uh, just the various many things that happened, many things that were said, the the, the golf shots, the reaction between the two different teams. It was a pivotal one, uh, and as I said earlier, probably an inflection point as far as the status of that event goes. Today is the second day of November, which means in less than 11 months, we will have another version of the Ryder Cup across the pond over in France in 2018. For now, thank you for listening to the Golf.com podcast. Thanks again to John Feinstein. If you enjoyed this talk and you enjoyed the Ryder Cup, go check out his book. Let us know about it both on Twitter. He is at J Feinstein Books. That's J-F-E-I-N-S-T-I-N-B-O-O-K-S. And I am at Sean underscore Zak. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zak. <laughs>